Proverbs 25, verse 1 says, These also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. So this is our fourth message uh, called Table Talk. This is where you might remember in chapter 9 of Proverbs, Lady Wisdom built her house, she sent out the invitations, and she asked people to come and dine with her. A huge feast she, she put on. And so the rest of the Proverbs, from that point on, chapter 10 to the end, we have these uh, one-liners, or two-liners, called Proverbs. And it's where you have this long sentence based on short, I'm sorry, a long, a short sentence founded on long experience. So that we don't have to go and live and learn, but we get to learn and then live and truly live because we don't have to uh, jump off a building to find out that gravity hurts. Right? That's the way the world lives. We've got to go experience things. But Lady Wisdom invites us to her table to dine with us, to give us morsels of her wisdom. Uh, little by little, she does this. Never one subject for much of a length of time, but bouncing from this topic to that topic, back to this, and then over to here. And the sort of the way that just natural table talk happens, so that what Lady Wisdom's doing, she's distilling her lessons in us little by little, in this sort of messy mesh, the same way that life happens to us. Life doesn't come to us in a neat series of topicals. Life comes to us compounding and often veiling what it actually is. So while you're on the phone dealing with some false charge with your bank and you got kids fighting each other and um, the stove with smoke coming out of it all at the same time, right? That's how life happens. One problem is compounded by another and it happens on layers. And rarely does someone come to you who is that pain in your side and 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 they come to you with a manual saying the life manual says handle me according to the instructions on page 72 that's not how life works life happens and we have to discern as we go so lady wisdom seats us at our table and gives us a proverb here a proverb there and so forth until we learn how to get this this nutritious well-rounded balance but now we're at the last part of the table talk conversations. This is the fourth and final course. And so she's wrapping up. She's summing up with us her lessons. So there's going to be the sense of conclusion and finality. So this is where, at the end here, chapter 25, the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. All of these are the Proverbs of Solomon, but this last section is a special volume brought out that later kings collected and compiled that were Solomon's, saying, look, these didn't, these, we remember these and these haven't been shared, and so we gotta compile these and share them. So toward the end here, Lady Wisdom is bringing together some strands of thought. And so we're actually gonna see unusual, this is not like the rest of the Proverbs, we're gonna see some stretches of themes actually. Because now she's kind of bringing the whole feast together and distilling the final thoughts to us. So um, what she's going to do is before we leave the, her table, Lady Wisdom's going to warn us about the seven types of depraved people. The seven types of depraved people. So that we go out and we know who they are and we don't become them. But before we look at that, I want to take us through some of the highlights of 25 through 29. And then we'll go look at those seven types of depraved people. Okay? So chapter 25, verse 6. We'll start there. 25, 6 says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence, or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. That's such practical advice, isn't it? Wouldn't it be better for everyone to hear someone tell you, hey, you deserve to be in a better place than for you to be humiliated. What are you doing up there? You don't even know what you're doing. That would be embarrassing. Well, this is so practical that Jesus himself just full-on quotes this in Luke chapter 14. You might remember he is feasting with a ruler. This is Luke 14. And... There, he's sitting at the table, and he's looking around, and it says this, Luke 14, 7. Now, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited to the feast when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Now, 
you would have maybe the host, and maybe he's an important person, a wealthy person. Maybe he's a rabbi. He's important. So people wanted to be closer to him, to be seen. And Jesus notices this, and he says to them, Look, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Hey, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, that is not Jesus' life hack tip for how to be exalted in front of everybody. Um, That's not at all the promise. You may very well seek the lowest place and stay there. What Jesus, what Lady Wisdom are calling us to is to have such a view of ourselves that's the right place in the world. Who am I to think that I deserve applause or honor? Not at all. Uh, We're we're big on actually admitting we're sinners here uh, when we pray. Um, before worship, we, we, we confess our sins. Because who are we? Everything that I've been given in my life that is good. Like, I, it astounds me that God has entrusted a church to me. It astounds me that I have a wife like Brittany. It astounds me that I have children who are wonderful. And, and you can go down the list. It astounds me because when I look at who I really am in light of God's glory, I deserve nothing. In fact, I deserve to have been expelled from the kingdom of God on more than one occasion. And understanding my proper place before God is, God, I'm just happy to be at the table. And if he's going to call me to another place, fantastic. But woe be to us when we complain that others are promoted or we think we deserve a better place because we truly don't have hearts in the right place. The very first words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 are, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 25 verse 21, continuing. 25 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, Paul, in Romans chapter 12, cites this proverb. So, Paul was talking about enemies and how to treat them and to love them. Jesus told us to bless our enemies when we're persecuted, um, not to fight back. In fact, at prayer, we read, those of you who are here know, we read First Peter 3, where he talks about don't revile when reviled, don't be spiteful when you are scorned, or don't scorn when you're scorned, um, but we're to handle all things with humility. And here, the whole putting heaps of coal on your enemy's head and then the Lord will bless you. There's been some debate about like what that means, and it's never been exactly clear to me, but it's been ex- I've heard it explained that um, sometimes people would carry jars and there were embers and so that your fire wouldn't go out in the kitchen, and putting the coals on their head was actually helping them. It wasn't like burning their skulls, okay? It wasn't doing that to their scalps. It was, it was helping to keep their fires lit in their kitchens was the idea. And that would be consistent with Jesus' teaching. So perhaps that's what we're reading there. Um, But it's important because Paul quotes this one in the New Testament. 25 verse 24. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. That must have been a hit proverb by Solomon because this is repeated. We read this one last week. Um, now remember, um, it could easily read, it's better to live in a corner of a house up than in a house shared with a quarrelsome husband. <laughs> it's not only women who are the quarrelsome ones, but you have to remember that back in this day, it was the man's family who chose the wife for their son. So the candidacy was always, what kind of a woman are we looking for? Today, there's more of a mutual agreement in marriage, so we could easily read, look, Watch if your, if your significant other is quarrelsome or not. 25, like water 
cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. That one might, if you read it too quick, it might pass right over you. Imagine a spring polluted or muddied. The value of a spring is in its drinkability. But you throw some pollutants in there, some mud, and now it's no longer valuable. It's not drinkable. Well, the value of the righteous is in their righteousness. The value of God's people. But if we're to mix some mud or some pollutants, some sin in there, you've now muddied the spring and it's no longer as valuable. There's nothing worse than Christians sharing the gospel or inviting people to walk the way of Jesus, but they're not making any efforts to live the holy life he's called us to. That's, that's just why offer people a muddy cup of water. It doesn't help anyone. In verse 27, it is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Praise me! You praise me. What good does that do? I asked you to do it. You disobeyed me. Doesn't mean anything. All right, we're going to pass over 26, because that's where, late, chapter 26 is where Lady Wisdom gives us the seven despicable, depraved forms of humanity. So we're going to go back to those at the end. So we're just going to keep highlighting some of the Proverbs here. So we're going to go to 27, verse 1. 27 starts with quite a few really good Proverbs. Verse 1, chapter 27, verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Jesus said, uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Uh, Sufficient for today are the things at hand. And James tells us, very similar to this verse, look, don't boast about tomorrow, focus on today. And so the Bible in multiple places has this emphasis on today is the day. Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day, brothers and sisters. I I just spoke um, with a sister who is going through something that um, they're very anxious about. And um, as we were talking, it's very clear, like, this thing that may or may not happen in a few days is weighing on their present peace of mind. And the Bible's calling us not to live in tomorrow. You can't control tomorrow. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, how does worrying add one cubit measure to your life? You can't control it, and worrying doesn't do anything. Worrying does not go out into the future and fix things for you. All it does is rob you of what's happening now. And so this proverb, and like Jesus' teachings and James' teachings, it's calling us to live in the present Right now, how I respond to what God puts in my path is the only thing I have control over. Will I complain or will I thank him for his will being revealed in my path? But that's not the way I wanted his will to be revealed. Right, your will didn't want his will to work like that. Do you understand what you're saying there? We're seeking his will and we receive it in his way. He knows what we need to grow. He knows how to lead us out of Brandon's woeful ego. He knows how to lead me out of that. And so focus on um, living now in the present. Verse 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. We just heard that one in chapter 25, something like that. But verse 3. I want you guys to think of Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers in Genesis. Think of him when we hear this one. A stone is heavy, and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. Okay, that's not the Joseph one. That's true. A stone is heavy, and a fool's provocation is heavier than sand or stones. That's true. And imagine sand, it's hard to hold, and it kind of, you lose your hold on it. Fools are just so hard to carry around with you and have a grasp on. Verse 4, though, is the one I meant to say. Wrath is cruel, Anger overwhelming, indeed. Wrath and anger, um, they're, they're hard to deal with. But who can stand before jealousy? Jealousy is the hardest of them all. That's where we look at Joseph and say, wouldn't he rather have had angry, mean, mad brothers than jealous brothers? Do you see how jealousy led them to betraying him and selling him and making him a slave in Egypt? You see how jealousy made Potiphar's wife uh, lie about him trying to rape her and him ending up in prison for years and years? Jealousy is so hard to stand before. 
verse 5 and 6 go together. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What that is saying is an enemy will kiss you by like telling you what you want to hear. But a friend will sometimes tell you what you don't want to hear. Those are the wounds it's talking about. And those are done faithfully. When a friend wounds us, the Proverbs are saying is that they are faithful wounds. They're not ill-intended. Because verse 5 told us, open love, better is open rebuke than hidden love. You want love not to be fake? That's what enemies do. Oh, we just love it when you're around. And then they go tweet about how much they dislike you when you're around. Um, But the faithful wounds of a friend will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. So the Proverbs tell us to seek those people who will faithfully wound us rather than those who will kiss us and then stab us behind our back. Verse 7. One who is full loathes honey. But to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Satisfaction in God satisfies our cravings for sin. Because what sin is, is it's an easy, cheap way to satisfy the desires of our hearts. What we do when we sin is we're choosing a Snickers bar over Lady Wisdom's roasted lamb. Or if you're vegetarian, roasted asparagus with salt and pepper and sliced almonds. Um, drizzled with olive oil, too. Um, he was full of honey. He was full loathes honey. So even if you are tempted or, or offered this great temptation, like honey, wow, back in the day, honey was the sweet thing, right? There's no junk food in Bible days. Honey is it. Honey is the sweetest thing you can have. Someone can offer that to you and say, oh, I'm so full, no thanks. The idea is that when we delight ourselves in God, he fulfills the desires of our hearts. He fills us so that even the sweetest temptations of the world, oh, no thanks, I've got everything I need in Christ. That's the idea. And the one who is hungry, every bitter thing is sweet. Well, if we go about our days just saying, I do believe in God, but we never receive his fullness in our lives, we will go around saying, well, that looks fun. That looks enticing. This makes me feel important. That will give me the success of the status I'm looking for. And we reach for all the things in life. And this is no way to live. The gospel saves us from the ways of the world, which lead to dead ends. So therefore, let us embrace it and embrace Christ and allow him to fill us so that even honey looks despicable. 27 verse 14. I like this. I just like some of these, so I'm just going to read them. 27 14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. <laughs> Don't you love that? It reminds me of uh, youth camps when you're younger and the annoying leaders would think it's so funny to bang garbage cans and wake you up. Or some people probably go through that in their boot camp training in the military. Or it's like 15. Another marital advice. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or grasp oil in one's right hand. Iron sharpens iron, and one man's uh, where am I? And one man sharpens another. And so the coming together of believers and the fellowship of believers is meant to rub us a little bit. Sometimes we don't like that, and we choose churches based upon who isn't there, so that we can be safer. Um, but brothers and sisters, if we're actually trying to grow outside of ourselves and into the Godhead if we're trying to partake in the divine nature and to be sons and daughters of God, you can't do that with your own resources, your own means. We need God's grace, and we need the people he puts in our lives to pull us out of our comfort zones. Sanitizing our lives with our own wishes will never grow you up. You will be what C.S. Lewis called a moral midget. Hmm. 
Where are we? 28. Let's go to 28 verse 2. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers. But with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. You could also just easily, in our day and age, read this. When a land transgresses, it has many rules and laws and bureaucracy. And that's where we are today. Uh, taxes, you know, we need more taxes to keep our nation afloat. We need more bureaucratic rules and all these impersonal ways of doing things because there are so many cheaters in the world that we have to outlaw the cheaters. So we put laws on our laws because people find out ways to go around the laws. Look, when transgression multiplies, so do the rulers. And this is, this is the sad thing about what we see in the world today. Things are just, oh, it gives me a headache. But there you go. There's the Proverbs telling you about it. 23 verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Adam and Eve, why are you hiding? If you confess, you will obtain mercy. Instead, the woman you gave me made me do it. The serpent made me do it. Or like we read at prayer, Saul in 1 Samuel 15. What do you mean, Samuel? I obeyed the Lord, the people. Remember Saul was told to wipe out the Amalekites, but he saves the best for himself. Oh, but it's for the Lord. God asks you to get rid of all of it, and he blames the people. In all these instances, we see opportunities for God's people to confess and obtain mercy, but when we don't confess, we withhold the favor and mercy that God wants to give to us. We hurt ourselves by pretending that we haven't sinned. Twenty-eight, verse twenty-six. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. According to the Proverbs, the age of enlightenment was misnamed. Because that was the era when we started to betray tradition and began to trust in our own human ingenuity, the age of enlightenment. We live, modernity is living out of that shift. And yes, it has brought great good. I don't deny that. There was great progress and advancement in the world in the Age of Enlightenment. But there's also been a lot of loss as we've trusted in our own minds. And the Bible warns us here, Lady Wisdom says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. So there's something to be said about not completely abandoning the ways of the old world. Because we can't just trust in what we can test. We can't just trust in what we see. We can't just trust in what we understand. 29 verse 1. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken without healing. Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 29 verse 9. If a wise man has an argument with a fool... The fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. (laughs) On one hand, what that's saying is a wise man may argue with the fool, but the fool, no matter what happens, is going to find a way to twist it and tweak it like he's the winner. You see that all over in the world today. Uh, But then this leads my mind down the path of apologetics and how often they can be used. I do not favor it when Christianity uses apologetics to win arguments. Um, Because um, often what we end up seeing is, let's say, well, there was, there's sometimes these famous debates where there's a Christian and, and then there's this like scientist and they debate and almost sometimes it seems weird because like they're both talking in completely different worlds and completely different rules of logic that they're just talking over each other and never talking to each other. They don't hear what each other are saying. It's just talking head. Okay, my turn, talking head. And always both sides, unfortunately, leave the debate saying, we demolished them. We creamed them. We won that one. And that's, that's never what defending our faith was meant to do. Defending our faith was meant to strengthen believers in their faith. And today, we do need apologetics. We do need Christians who are good at explaining our faith to the outsider because increasingly the outsider is completely outside of the gospel. There are people in our own nation who don't know what the gospel is. 
They think they know what Christianity is about. Oh, yeah, they're anti-gay and they're like, oh, like gung-ho on marriage and like traditions and all these things. Like that's all they know. They don't know the gospel of what we're saved from. The God's plan for the world and for humanity and what the kingdom of God is and that we belong to another kingdom. They don't understand the gospel. We need Christians who can share the gospel with outsiders more than ever. And here's another reason. Because today, for the first time in our nation, Christians are the sinners. I don't mean that we just started sinning. We've always been sinners. But in the culture's eyes, we are the pagans. The progressive agendas that are out there believe that they are doing the moral thing. Whereas we, when we drag our heels, we are the immoral ones. And so we live in a time when we have to actually explain ourselves that no, we are not evil. We do not hate humanity. We love humanity. Here's how we love humanity. Here's why we love humanity differently. We need Christians who can explain the faith to a world that sees us as pagan. Things have changed dramatically, and they're just going to flash fast forward. Look at the generation uh, younger, much younger. It's just the, the, the lack of understanding Christianity and the hostility toward Christianity is going to increase rapidly when we see the newer generations coming into power. It will fast forward, and we need to be ready. Not to terrify you, just know who you believe in and walk with Christ and you'll be okay. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't say, woe to you. He said, blessed are you. Um, enough of that. 29 verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds back. Hashtag opinions are foolish. <laughs> a fool gives full vent to his spirit. That's, the, that's what our culture is thriving on today. It's opinion, opinion, opinion. Most people today, when they talk about the news, are not actually talking about news. They're talking about opinions about the news they read or heard. Most of news today is opinion. We live in a world of opinion, and we need to not follow the ways of the world of opinion. We need to recognize that Scripture is warning us that just simply venting your spirit is foolishness. The wise hold back and speak when it matters. 29 verse 20. 29 verse 20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. <laughs> so as much as the fool has been shown to be the worst path of life possible for the human being, there is still lower rungs than the fool, the man who is hasty in his words. So what do you think about, oh, you want to know what I think? <laughs> what do you think we should do? This is what we should do. Hasty in your words. Quick to vent what you feel or think. Um, notice, though, also this is, uh, this is um, in 26 verse 12. There's another one like this. 26.12 says this. 26.12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So as low as the fool is on Lady Wisdom's totem pole, there are two rungs that are beneath him. The man who is hasty in his words and the man who is wise in his own eyes. Be careful. 29.25, finally. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. A snare, it's that trap you set when you're hunting animals. They walk, they step in, they're caught. The fear of man will be a snare to you. If you care about the respect of people, if you care about the judgments of others on your life, you will forever be entrapped and ensnared to their opinions and to their applause. Always. Conversely, Proverbs had opened by calling us to, and it was been repeated throughout the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding and wisdom. 
So the opposite of the fear of man, caring for their opinions and their applause, the fear of the Lord is caring for his opinions and his applause. It's not living life through the lens of those around me. It's living life through the lens of God. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And so the fear of man's a snare, but the fear of God is true liberty. Because this is the way we are made to live. And then you can walk in him who knows how you function. Okay, those are some of the highlights of 25 to 29. Now, let's go to chapter 26. Because this is where, chapter 25 has a big collection of stuff, but chapter 26 especially has some collections. So like we said, this is where Hezekiah's men kind of clustered some of Solomon's proverbs together, and Lady Wisdom's wrapping up the table talk with some themes. So, the themes are the seven types of depraved people. The seven types of depraved people. And I get a sense. I can't say this authoritatively. I haven't given this much uh, enough pondering to say it authoritatively. But as I look at it, I get a sense that these seven types, it's almost like this downward spiral, spiral of depravity. Like we start with the gateway into depravity, and then we end with the bottom of depravity. Okay? So you can check that, and maybe you can uh, argue with me or agree with me, or I don't know. But um, I, I get a sense, though, that there is, a, there is a descent into depravity as we go. So the seven types of depraved people. Number one is actually in the verse before 26, because the chapters are not inspired. Um, it's chapter 25, verse 28. It's the undisciplined person. The undisciplined person. 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Self-control is like the gate guarding your life. Without it, you are an open city. And the, the armies have no problem marching in, destroying and devastating everything. So, you can call a lack of self-control... Uh, you can call it the gateway vice to all the other vices. Self-control, the breakdown of self-control is where everything else can start. You lose self-control, you are open to all kinds of bondage, all kinds of addiction, all kinds of influences from the world. And that doesn't mean, oh, self-control broke down, now I'm addicted to this or that. That's not always where it ends up. Sometimes you are simply oppressed by the world's way of thinking because you haven't had the disciplines or the self-control that Christ has called us to to have a prayer life or to read scripture. And so your mind is more formed by the world than it is by Christ himself. But the loss of self-control is the gateway vice into all folly and depravity. My professor at the School of Ministry, Carl Westerland, um, this was in, he taught a class called Spiritual Formation and I remember, I remember hardly anything about that class except this. He said, um, if you can't say no to a sock, how will you ever say no to the enemy of your soul? I was like, what? <laughs> what does a sock and the devil have anything to do with one another? Um, and th- he explained it that, this is very what he what he said was this was a very practical down to earth way of saying that the undisciplined soul is a defeated soul. Very practical and down to earth. How many times have you walked into a room and ignored that thing that could easily be picked up? How many times have you? I'm naming all the things I do. How many times have you put that dirty cup in the sink when the dishwasher is dirty and it can go in there? How many times have we walked past that sock? That's what his point was. If we cannot say no to a sock, how can we say no to the enemy of our souls? Pick up the sock. Do the right thing. This is discipline. And this protects the life against the ways that the devil works. Because yes, even on a practical level, the undisciplined life is open to all kinds of influence. Now, of course, there are very, there are low disciplines, picking up socks, and there are high disciplines, reading your Bible and praying. The disciplines will defend us against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Not my works, 
But the, the disciplines of the Spirit are these pathways of where God's grace is being poured out. So that we receive the grace, and then the grace enables us to build the wall and the fortifications against all the influences that are trying to shape our souls. The second depraved human is the fool. (laughs) Obviously, we can't skip that one. The Proverbs are all about the wise versus the fool. But chapter 26, 1 through 12, so the first 12 verses of this chapter are all about the fool. Check it out. 26 verse 1. Like snow in summer, or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Okay. Is snow fitting in July? You imagine if it just snows, we got five inches of snow while everyone's at the lake watching fireworks. Is that fitting? We would say that's very weird. That's very weird. I mean, twice we've gotten snow in June, but that was also weird, right? Um, so honor is not fitting for a fool. It's weird for a fool. But, but think deeper than that. If you are in an agrarian society, like the Old Testament, and you depend upon the crops that you gather, you're depending upon summer, warm, dry weather to keep those crops healthy that you've harvested. If it was to suddenly snow, you would lose the whole year's harvest. Because it would rot. It would be destroyed. It is the same thing. When you give honor to a fool, you're actually damaging his soul. Because he doesn't know how to handle that. That's more than he can carry. Further yet, when a society gives honor to a fool, the society begins to mildew and rot. And Lord have mercy because we might be there. Um, if you you keep going, you look at verse four, all these verses are about the fool, but verse four, answer, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Then in verse five, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So it says, don't answer a fool. Then it says, answer a fool. But the very common sense way of looking at this is what he's saying is, look, when you see a fool doing something foolish, you've got to rebuke him. But do not rebuke him in the manner of a fool. Do not talk to him in the way he talks to you. That's what it's saying. Answer a fool, but do not answer like a fool. Verse 6. Verse 6 through 10, uh, they form what's called a chiastic structure. We've talked about these, you know, randomly here and there through the years. You remember chiastic structure is kind of like a pyramid. Um, On one side, the steps go up. And then on the way down, they mirror each other. So point one, two, three, point three, two, one. They mirror each other. Uh, at the very top, the center is the main idea. So six through ten is a chiasm. Okay. So here's how it looks. It's about. Um, it basically, he's going to say is, "Do not honor a fool." We saw that it rots them. It rots people. Do not honor a fool. Well, here's how. Okay, verse six. Uh, Do not honor a fool with an important job. Verse 6, whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. You don't want your message to get there? Then send a fool. But don't send a fool if you want your message to get there. And it sounds like the fool gave the message in a sarcastic, like, kind of, like, derogatory way. And so then the person that received the message came back and fought with the message sender. That's, like, what it's saying. The fool misrepresented you. Do not give honor to a fool by giving him an important job, or you will hurt yourself. Verse 7, do not give honor to a fool by giving him important information. Like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. You can't educate a fool out of his folly. You can't give him proverbs and say, we fixed him. That's not how it works. They just hang limp. Now, on the, on the other side of this point, you're going to see how dangerous it can be. Uh, verse 8, this is the middle, this is the top of the pyramid, this is the middle point of the chiasm. Verse 8, like one who binds the stone in the sling is one who gives honor to a fool. Do you hear that? Give honor, giving honor to a fool is like giving a loaded pistol to a child. It's dangerous. You're arming a fool with a weapon when you give him honor. 
now I'm somebody. Now I can do things. You really want a fool doing that? Now we come back on the other side of the chiasm. Verse 9, do not honor a fool by giving him important information. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. So now the information um, can uh, be hurting him, or maybe the thorn going up into the hand of the drunkard, maybe that's also saying the fool's using his new knowledge as weapons against people. And then on the back end of this whole chiasm, do not give honor to a fool by giving him an important job. Verse 10. Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or a drunkard. So giving an important job to a fool can actually hurt people. All right, so don't give honor to a fool. And now verse 11 and 12 concludes the fool. Verse 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Isn't that great and memorable? So much so that Peter quotes this one in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 to 22, where there he says, look, those who have been enlightened with salvation, I'm paraphrasing, those who have been enlightened with salvation and then turn again to their sinful ways is like the proverb that says a dog returns to his vomit. And then Peter adds another para- uh, proverb that we don't know where it comes from. He says, and also like a pig that once cleaned returns to the mud. A fool, you can instruct them, you can correct them, you can show them the way, but it is in their nature to desire folly. So they will go back to it. Now that's not to say condemn the fool, there's no hope for them. You have to remember, you were a fool too. We were fools. It was the light of Christ. It was the imparting of his spirit. It was getting to know Lady Wisdom that has taught us to come out of foolery. It takes God's grace to bring us out of foolery. We were like those who ate our own vomit. Verse 12, we already read this. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So you're saying there's a chance. Yes. Even the fool has some hope. Some of you got that reference, I guess. I'm ashamed of you. Just kidding. 26 verse 13. Uh, now we get to the third um, uh, person of depravity. And this is the sluggard. The sluggard. I'm going to read all. Uh, this is 13 through 16. We're going to read all four verses. The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. As the door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So there's a terrible progression here. The sluggard does not leave his home. Then the sluggard does not leave his couch. And then the sluggard can't even bring his hand out of the bowl to feed himself. Terrible degradation here. Now verse 13, we said this last week because this proverb was already said. Um, there's a lion in the streets. There's a lion in the streets. Uh, that's basically him saying, I can't go and do work today because there's a lion out there. I might die. That's, that's exactly like us when we say, oh, I'm going to start my diet. Oh, no, today is donut day at work. I'll do it tomorrow. Like there's always, to the sluggard, there's always a reason to do something later. There's a, there's a lion outside. There's, oh, it's a bad day. Or, oh, I, just, I, 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 it's, I don't, Wednesday isn't really the day to start things like this. I don't know. And that's, that's, the, that's what he's saying. And the verse 14 is great. As the door turns on its hinges, so there's a sluggard on his bed or on his couch. It's just a couch potato. Um, <laughs> doors hinge, like they turn on one hinge. A very narrow, constricted space. So does the sluggard. It's not like he's rolling around. He's just like in one little space. And for him, as the door is uh, confined to the hinge, uh, a sluggard is confined to his comfort zone. But a door is even better than a sluggard because a door at least gets you to something else. The sluggard gets you nowhere. Um, he buries his hand in the dish, where he's going to bring it back to his mouth. Um, one commentator, just this is what he said about it. Sluggards are so allergic to work that the very thought of it exhausts them. And then sluggards don't grow beyond their viewpoints in verse 16. 
You get to a point where it's just too exhausting to listen to other people. And that's where we are, actually, as a culture. We don't want to listen to other people because it's exhausting to try to understand other people. We don't want to. We just want to vent where we are. This is a sluggard mentality. And so you can never empathize. You can never grow with this uh, mentality. So that's why it's a depraved person. All right, four. So the depraved person, number four, five, six, and seven, the last four, they all deal with words in the mouth. So it's all the last part of Proverbs 26. So uh, the fourth depraved person is the drama king or the drama queen. This is in verse 17. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. <laughs> That's fantastic. You imagine walking uh, and see you see two coyotes fighting, and you just go in there, that's enough, and you grab them by the ears. Just imagine that. That is what drama is like. And people who busy themselves with getting involved in other people's disputes and problems. There's a Messiah complex in some people that they need to get involved and help things along. I gotta be involved. I gotta. That's a bored life. The person who has no investment in something bigger than themselves, like the kingdom of God, is living in their own kingdom and they get bored with it. So they have to bring their kingdom into other kingdoms' quarrels so that they feel important. You could say that about nations too. So that they feel important. Um, and it's as if, like, if you spend all your time watching reality TV and it's all about drama and gossip and bickering, and there comes a point when you try to recreate that in real life. I see this all the time in students that I teach at high school. Um, it's like you matter if you get yourself involved in other people's lives. And the Proverbs is saying the wise person doesn't go there doesn't need to be involved in other people's stuff because the wise person has enough to deal with here and trying to serve the kingdom of God. Depraved person number five is the Joker. Not the Batman Joker, although he's pretty depraved too, but verse 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I am only joking. Ouch, we have all done that. You say something cutting, and then you say, it was a joke, dude, relax. I've heard it said that behind every joke, there is a percentage of truth, and I believe that 100%. Because when I look at when I joke, it's my way of trying to get the truth across without being direct. It's my cheap shot at somebody Jokes are violent. They hurt people. That's clearly what the proverb is saying. But here's the other problem. Um, the dramatist thinks, that, that the drama king or queen, they think too highly of their words. Oh, I'm going to fix this with my words. I'm going to get in here and, get in and fix all this. The joker thinks too lowly of his words. It doesn't matter what I say. I'm going to have a good time, make everyone laugh at everyone's expense. But it all hurts. And jokes actually can hurt worse than direct truth. Because you've heard it, maybe you've heard it said before that uh, a knife hurts less than a spoon. If you, if you stab someone with a spoon, you've got to use a lot of force because it's a blunt edge. But a knife goes in easily. Direct truth is like the knife, but a joke is like the spoon. And when you catch what someone's heart is behind the joke, it can hurt more. He's like, why don't you just tell me what you mean? Number six, the slanderer. Verse uh, 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels, they go down into the inner parts of the body. So what that's basically telling us is that the slanderer sustains strife because 21 says, look, if you take the wood out, then the embers will die. You take the quarrelsome man out, the gossip, the slanderer, strife will die. So slander sustains the strife that exists. But slander and gossip also inflame strife. It creates strife where none existed before, like verse 22 no, it's 21. 
as charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so quarrelsome man is to kindling strife. So they're whispering, you're talking about other people, just ignites the strife. And then verse 22, that's the one uh, that tells us that strife infects its hearers. The words of a whisper are like delicious morsels that go down to the innermost parts of the body. What we hear when we hear gossip, it gets inside of us and it changes the way we see the other person. Because now you're like part of a, you're like, ooh, you, we were brought into somebody's secret. We're like a little secret cult here. We have this clan that nobody else knows about because we talk about that person. We see them like nobody else sees them. It's a very tempting and seductive way to be caught up into belonging is at someone else's expense. Um, the slanderer is one of the depraved people in the Proverbs. And finally, the seventh depraved person is the flatterer in verse 23 to the end. Verse 23, the flatterer. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts rolling it. The idea is that you're rolling the, the stone up the hill to push it down the hill on someone, but it comes back on you before you get to the top. And a lying tongue hates its victims. Bless you. And a flattering mouth works ruin. The flatterer. The slanderer speaks too quietly in whispers, but the flatterer speaks too loudly. The slanderer hates people secretly, but the flatterer hates people politely. What the Proverbs here are saying is don't believe what they say to you because they hate you. There are, there are all these deceptions. Um, that, that What they're saying is just glaze, verse 20. It's just glaze covering the earthen vessel. Fervent lips and evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips. So when the flatterer is speaking to you, there's a good chance that they actually hate your guts. That they're just hating you politely. So don't trust flattery. Flattery is deceptive. Don't trust it. When people butter you up, it's, it's a very good chance that he who flatters before you is whispering to others behind you. Oh, you're so wonderful. Can you believe Sam. And what it says here, which shocks me, is that flattery is motivated by hatred. That's that's alarming to me. Because you hear a flatterer and you're kind of, well, yeah, tell me more. What's really going on there? Why would somebody keep waxing on how great you are? Because they despise you. And you have no idea what they're saying behind your back. Don't trust those people. Don't be lured into the person that's just flattering you, making you feel good about yourself. They're using you. The Proverbs warn us about this person. And the language makes me believe that we're, we've hit the bottom of depravity. Because now you're using language in the exact opposite intent. It's not just twisted. You're now completely inverting your words. Jesus told us that our words come from the overflow of our heart. It's Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So where do our words come from? Here. They come from here. They come from here. James said this in a terrifying manner. And he said in James 3, 6, the tongue is set on fire by hell. Its destructive force comes from hell. But, he then adds, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and do not be false to the truth. What do he say? If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So on one hand, we're told here in the Proverbs that hatred is behind the flattery. You could say hatred is behind slander. You could say hatred is behind joking. Just see racial jokes and slurs. And you could, maybe this is a stretch, but you could say hatred is behind the person who gets involved in other people's drama. One dimension behind our words is hatred. The other two dimensions are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, according to James. 
we must guard against these poisons. That when we use our words, see, on one hand, it's, it's so easy to tell people, don't say that, it's bad. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Okay. And it's just like, oh, it's just my willpower to do it. But then why do I keep saying that? Why did I drop that joke? Why did I hurt that person with my words? And it's not helpful also to say, just stop talking, talk less. <laughs> How many times do you tell yourself, I'm not going to say much more, and then you end up saying more? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about because you talk all the time. That's fine. But see, what's driving our words is not a lack of willpower. It's that there's stuff deep inside that is simmering. It's like this fire simmering, fire from hell simmering there. And bubbling up from that come these words. The fire is hatred. It's bitter jealousy and it's selfish ambition. Why do I gossip? I'm jealous. Or I have selfish ambition and they're in my way. And Christians must think too about what we say about people who hold to different ideological viewpoints than us. Or than you. Maybe in this room we have different, we do in this room have different ideological viewpoints. The other side of your political, I hate talking politics because it sounds like, anyways. Um, The other side, like they're not evil. But to say that, what, what is that revealing? You either hate the other party. Are you willing to admit that? Or you have some kind of jealousy about the other party. Or you have some sort of a ambition to be better than the other party. Those are three gross and grievous sins. And this goes down the list in every single way. When I get involved in other people's drama, when I slander and gossip... When I joke, when I flatter, hatred or bitter jealousy or selfish ambition is behind the scenes lurking in the shadows. So here's how we can be wise with our words. Here's how we can avoid at least these last four uh, steps of depravity with our words it's going back to the very first one. The gateway, the gateway vice to all depravity is what again? It's the undisciplined life. It's the lack of self-control. Spiritual discipline will protect us against hatred, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. It will protect us in our words, the spiritual disciplines. Now, there's a lot of those that you can talk about. Uh, basically, though, what spiritual disciplines are, are the things God's given us to do on a regular basis that get us in touch with his grace. His grace is being poured out. If I do Brandon's thing, I'm never getting, it's like, I'm not receiving God's grace. But if, if God's grace is being poured out and he says, here it is in prayer, here it is in scripture, here it is in, in, in being generous, here it is in confessing your sins. Like, if these are the places where grace is being poured out, I have to go under the spout where the grace is being poured out, Right? That's what spiritual disciplines are. And there are several of them, but what we're basically going to talk about some very simple ones here. Like, for example, first, start every day listening to God. That's a discipline. We, most of us start our day looking at our cell phone because that's our alarm clock. Now, obviously not wrong to use your alarm clock, but then you're like, oh, there's a oh, news alert. And before you know it, you're already sucked into the, what's going on in the world. Start your day by listening to God. James 1.19 actually um, talks about this, and I know I'm like way long, so I'm just going to kind of paraphrase. But you could jot it down. James 1.19 to 21, uh, James is talking about, uh, look, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. He could have left it there, but then he ends up saying, basically, you've got to get rid of the defilements of your heart so that you can receive with meekness the implanted word. That's how you heal the heart from saying angry and hurtful things is you receive in your heart the implanted word. We must start our day by listening to God. Not listening to opinions, not listening to myself, not listening to my pep talks, not listening to that which I know is going to rile me up, but listening to God. That's in scripture. We also start every day in solitude. Not with somebody else in solitude speaking to God. It's harder if you start your day speaking to someone else how quick your words can start to rule your life at that moment. 
Already in an argument, I got to win. Start your day speaking with God. That's called prayer. The Proverbs talk about this. Uh, sorry, Psalms. Psalms 4.4, be angry, but do not sin. And ponder in your beds. It, it's there saying, look, if you're angry, if you've got these things going on, if you've got hatred, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, bring that to God. Talk to him about it. He wants our honesty. God, I'm really struggling with this person right now, and I want to say mean things about them. Help me. That's talking to God. We often talk to him after we do it, if at all, and say, I'm sorry I did that. Why don't we talk to him while we're struggling with it? Why don't we be open with him about how we feel about other people so that he can give us grace to move past that? So we start every day in silence, listening to God. We start every day in solitude, speaking with God. And we start every day in the spirit, being filled with God. We start every day in the spirit, being filled with God. Ephesians 4, 29 to the end of the chapter tells us, look, let every word be gracious to the hearers. Lest you, I'm paraphrasing, lest you grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul implies that the work of the Spirit in our lives is consistent with the words we use with each other. An encouraging mouth is filled with the Spirit, and a slandering mouth is not. A drama mouth is not. A flattering mouth is not. Those are the things we can do. Those are some of the disciplines we can have to build up the walls so that we don't allow hatred, bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition to break in and destroy us. So the wise choose, the wise choose their words well because the wise know the word of God well. We learn to talk like God. We understand that he made the world with words and that our words can destroy the worlds of others. The wise use their words well because they know the word of God well. They listen to him, they speak with him, and they're filled with his spirit. Let's pray.